mainstream podcast. Today's episode features a pioneer in the sustainable investing world. Bill Oram, who's a partner at Capricorn, has proven that investors can do well and do good at the same time. Bill and his partners have led Capricorn, a $9 billion sustainable investment platform serving families, foundations, and institutional investors for over 20 years as a full-service OCIO and investment platform. Capricorn has been an innovator for a number of years and has evolved into a firm with three distinct but related investment strategies an OCIO, a GP stakes business that backs asset managers focused on sustainable investing, and the Technology Impact Fund, a VC fund with both Capricorn and outside capital focused on climate solutions. Capricorn has managed to navigate a complex investing strategy, impact or sustainable investing, and the many geopolitical and governmental challenges associated with climate-focused investing in order to generate impressive investment results. Bill and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of impact investing, how and why it's possible to generate impact and strong financial returns, how to find and seed managers, why it's so important to allocate capital to solving the climate challenge, and how they've helped normalize sustainable investing. Thanks, Bill, for coming on the show to share your wisdom and knowledge and for being a pioneer in the sustainable investing space. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Pleasure to have you. We've known each other for a long time, but it's great to finally have you on the podcast to discuss something in particular that I think is is fascinating because it's the combination of investing, but also creating impact. Capricorn has done this so well for a long period of time. So love to dive in and hear how you think about things. Sure. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, I think the right place to start is discussing the origins of Capricorn, because that gets into so much of how and why you've built the multifaceted platform that you've built today. We've had an incredible benefit in terms of our history in that we were originally formed to manage capital for Jeff Skoll, who was the founding president of eBay, as well as the Skoll Foundation, which is a large foundation focused on social entrepreneurship. I joined the firm really early on, almost 20 years ago, right as Jan Yudigaraglu and Stephen George were starting the company. Jeff and the foundation wanted to have their capital managed in a different way than was otherwise available at the time. And, and by that, I mean, they were really early in thinking about how to use all of their resources, their strategic capital, their philanthropic capital, and of course, their investment capital to scale up solutions to global challenges, to really affect transformational environmental and social change. They were early in what has now become much more common, this idea of total portfolio activation or mission alignment. So a lot of, I think, the fundamental questions or issues that asset owners or investors have to address before embarking on this journey, we had the benefit of great partnership with those early investors. Walk me through the early days of the formation of Capricorn and its strategies. What I really love to understand is, was impact or sustainable investing where you started and then said, okay, we're going to go find ways to effectuate this strategy and generate returns, but we want to create impact? Or was it, let's go find what we believe are the best returning investments, and you all believe that investing in things like climate solutions or deep tech, as we know it now, would be the best ways to achieve that. These things tend to, to perhaps blend together with hindsight. And today they're very much integrated. But I would say in reflecting back, we were really started with this aspiration to do something different and to seek out alignment between the capital, the investment portfolio, and really the mission of those original clients. Over time, we had to actually operationalize that. That was the aspiration. That was the true north. But how do you actually combine that with an investment portfolio that can be sufficiently resilient, 
can compound at high rates. One of the things that we realized early on was that one basic premise, if you will, of investing, which is far easier said than done, is that in order to have different outcomes, you need to do things differently. If you just adopt a standard approach and have a common lens around your investment activity, you're likely going to end up in the same place as others, and you're likely, therefore, going to end up with similar returns. As we thought about the mission, it was also useful to have an opportunity to think about the evolution of economies and markets differently from others. We were able to be entrepreneurial. We were able to develop and learn in some of these areas that were aligned with the mission. And again, fortunately for us, there weren't many people active in those areas. So we were able to develop some competencies and some networks that allowed us to bring in the other critical aspect of this, which is the returns. Over time, we started to gravitate to a few different areas that uh, we thought were aligned with the mission, but also in which one could credibly build up a diversified portfolio and earn the rates of return that we were looking for. That was clearly in climate. That's a big part of what we have done and will continue to do. Uh, there were also areas around financial inclusion, health and wellness, and then broadly sustainable markets. And how could we be catalytic to driving towards a more sustainable economy and, and form of investing? So in hindsight, I would say it was certainly the mission that was the starting point. But very quickly over time, we were looking for opportunities where it wasn't concessionary, where there was a real role for investment capital. And there were fundamental reasons why someone could achieve the type of returns that we were seeking. The three of you, Stephen, Jan, and yourself, all came from very different backgrounds to then build out Capricorn. How much do you think that played a role in thinking about things differently? For me, my background was no background. So that was quite easy. And part of the reason why I was very drawn to Capricorn was the common sense of it. Not knowing anything better, why would you not try to address big problems in the world, do as well as everyone else is doing financially, and have that level of integration and alignment? I, I came very much with a clean slate, if you will. I was there very early in my career, and so I was able to learn and develop alongside uh, everyone else at the firm. In the case of Stephen and Jan, Stephen obviously came both as an entrepreneur, an operator himself, also as an investor, and came from institutional asset management industry. So he brought, I think, a lot of the, the baseline skills that are required to build up a firm and put in place the processes, but also an entrepreneurial bent. In the case of Jan, he has a really varied background. He's done a whole variety of things as an academic with a PhD in astrophysics. He has incredible capability technically, scientifically, but he's also worked as a strategic investor prior to Capricorn, and then ultimately has really been the, the primary driver of a lot of our deep tech and climate solutions work. And I think really, to his credit, has oriented us towards focusing on both being different. I think that's been a big part of Jan's contribution, thinking about markets and assets differently, but also being really true to the mission. Let's not allow short-term deviations or even some challenges get us off track of how can we fulfill the mission. In the early days, this was even well before like, JP Morgan came out with this seminal paper on impact investing saying that it would be a trillion dollar asset class. You were doing this well before it was in the mainstream. And to your point, you had this hypothesis and this hope that you could both invest in things that would create tremendous positive impact on the world, but also end up generating returns without any sort of concessions. What were the things that worried you most at the time and made you question whether or not this would actually be possible? I think this work has to be based on some of the same principles that other areas of investment activity has to be based on. You need to have some factors that are material to cash flow or discount rates and valuation of assets. You need to have the ability to develop some information asymmetries, the ability to develop advantages. It's dependent on networks and entrepreneurs. And there's a whole variety of things that it, it's dependent on that we can go into. But in terms of the worry, if you will, one of the challenges early on was the quality of entrepreneurs and, and talent in the space. I think that's been really well addressed in the subsequent 20 years. But early on, people weren't nearly as focused on climate solutions, deep tech. We were still in kind of the, the middle of the bell curve around more traditional venture and, and software investing. 
So whether it was investment talent, engineering talent, development talent, ultimately our model is we need to be a great partner to both other asset management companies, but also entrepreneurs and serve as a really effective platform to bring those two together. So if you didn't have the talent, that was, of course, going to be concerning. Clean Tech 1.0, as people have come to describe it, which was the 2006 to 2008 period, where there was a lot of capital, there was this initial surge of excitement, and it kind of petered out. Why did it peter out? Because one, some of the technology solutions weren't quite there. Two, some of the investment talent wasn't there. It was people that weren't used to investing into hardware, more capital-intensive industries. And when it became clear that there was more capital intensity to actually scale up some of these solutions, there weren't natural platforms to meet that demand. They were used to writing checks into more network-based or digital businesses, but if you actually have to develop a plant, then you need to find other financing sources. So between the point in time and then the financial crisis, I think a concern there was that all of a sudden people would have lost money, it would have a black mark over it, and all of a sudden you would have this uh, dearth of activity. And truthfully, I think that is what happened to some degree. We've now come through that, but we were one of the few groups active, both 2005, six, and really a lot of the work that Jan led, and then remained in the market. And that's been critical to our work, that we didn't come in, step out, come in, step out. We've been reasonably present in the impact and climate space now for the last 20 years, that means that access to entrepreneurs, access to investment talent has been reasonably consistent. The other thing that we had, which I, I didn't appreciate, but I think it was also a, a learning or a concern that we had, which was because we had a multi-asset class portfolio and we had a balance sheet that could absorb all different types of risk, that was a huge advantage in hindsight. The fact that we were comfortable absorbing not just venture capital type risk, but also scaling up with these companies, helping them manufacture, build their first facility, and actually had an infrastructure portfolio where we could see how these solutions were being deployed. That, in, in hindsight, was a, a very significant advantage that we had, that we weren't just a venture capital firm, nor were we just an infrastructure firm. We could accordion out from a risk and capital supply perspective. What's fascinating about that comment, which is something I want to circle back to, is that you figured out how to become an end-to-end -end solutions provider for the climate space, whether it's investing into other asset managers in this space across the spectrum of strategies, doing it yourself, investing in technology companies, you almost need to build the entire supply chain for this. And I, I want to focus on that point now, which is way back when, as you think about how this space has evolved, did you think about this at that time as, okay, how do we build the entire supply chain effectively? for this space, because it's not just venture capital that's going to be needed. There were hardware problems to solve. There were debt or infrastructure problems to solve. You could utilize tax credits. There's so many different ways to think about, particularly if we're focusing on climate or solar as an example, that you have to think about it more holistically than just one point solution. So was that kind of how you approach things early on as well? I know that's where we are today with you. I, I think that would be giving us a bit too much credit for how far into the future we could see. The way that I think about it is we started with some concentric circles of activity. It's really hard on one day to say we're going to do everything. No investment firm that I know of has ever been able to do that effectively. Many firms start with one core competency and then they expand into the next vertical. In our case, clearly given our heritage, I think given some of the early success that we had with Tesla and some other innovative businesses that gave us credibility and access to even more opportunities, clearly it started with venture. I think in the case of climate and even impact more broadly at the time, a lot of the activity was concentrated in venture. We started with how can we be catalytic, provide that early stage capital to help these entrepreneurs build these great businesses because we had a balance sheet that had a need and also could absorb growth, private equity, infrastructure type exposure, it became very natural that we would take some of those learnings in that venture that Jan led and then start to apply it into the respective asset classes. Again, it was probably more organic in terms of how it developed than it seems today, because today it is very much, we want to have a platform that can access the best opportunities, whether it be fund managers, direct investments, seed opportunities, and build this diversified portfolio. 
that's not monolithic. I think sometimes people think, oh, you say climate. Well, climate has applications across industries today. It has applications across a portfolio. You can create a very idiosyncratic return stream in a portfolio, and it's not just one bet. But to your point, this is a world you know even far better than I, specialty finance. That is one innovation that's been incredibly important for how do you, not just the technologies, but how do you deploy capital to meet these growing needs? It's a really interesting point when you think about the evolution of Capricorn. How much do you think the family office DNA or the permanent capital component of this, to your point, there are so many different ways to invest, so many different strategies to invest in. How much did that really inform how you thought about approaching the build of a firm? I think that the broad universe and opportunity set that we had, and frankly, the mandate that we had around how to build a portfolio that would be appropriate to generate intergenerational wealth was clearly critical. I will say, however, that sometimes I find that firms that have a similarly broad remit, they try to do everything everywhere. This idea that you can somehow be expert in every market, in every asset class, in every geography, it just doesn't work that way. We had this broad mandate, but frankly, the focus on climate and impact allowed us to simplify our life to some degree, because now we don't need to be expert in everything all over the world, but we do need to develop deep relationships and networks and advantages in these areas. And it's a good discipline around the mental models for things that work for us and things that don't. I think it's just really hard to try to compete everywhere in the world. And so I think the fact that we both had the flexibility around the capital, the permanency of the capital base, the long time horizon, frankly, the ability to try some things and innovate, many which worked, but some which didn't, of course, but also that it wasn't let's try to be the best in the world at everything everywhere. Let's just try to be really excellent in these few areas. On that point, what do you think were some of the proof points that told you, hey, this is actually working? I think one of the difficult to execute, but one of the more obvious opportunities as it relates to climate or impact is looking at assets that for the vast majority of asset owners had one application. In this case, it was agricultural land um, in California. People valued that asset with a certain kind of expectation. But with our partners in California, there was a plan to repurpose that around solar development and do so in a highly sustainable and well-balanced manner. And why that that's an interesting example around just having a different lens. If you see that land and all you can envision for it is ag land, well, okay, it has a certain value. If you can see that land, acquire it for what everyone else values it at as pure ag land, but repurpose it and reinvent it as a large-scale development around solar, and you have the kind of operating capability, then you can create real enduring and differentiated value creation. Of course, there are other examples around things that Jan and Depender led in, in tech and ventured around their access to great entrepreneurs. Obviously, the fact that they became a, a, key, a key source of, of financing for a lot of these early stage businesses. So those are, of course, proof points. I think when we look at the overall portfolio, our belief isn't this is like a silver bullet. It's very idiosyncratic to people that choose to spend their time in these areas. But more often than not, we found that because we maybe have a different lens on certain investments or teams even, for example, that we're backing, that the outcomes have been reasonably good. So I think that gets to a really important question when it comes to sustainable investing and the evolution of that as a narrative amongst investors. And that is, you've made some great investments. You've invested in SpaceX, you've invested in Tesla, you've invested in SailDrone. These are all companies that I think most mainstream investor, whether they, they care about or investing for sustainable impact, would also say these are good investments to make. How, how do you think about that comment in light of normalizing the idea of investing in sustainable investing? Because I think if people could have invested in those types of assets, they would, but they wouldn't have necessarily said, oh, I'm, an, I'm a sustainable investor. I'm an impact investor. Yeah. And I don't have a great answer to it because I think we want a bit of both. On the one hand, we want to normalize a lot of the fundamental building blocks for why this type of investing can work, why you can generate excess return. Obviously, I think there's broad recognition around the, the urgency and need to address climate change, both on the downside and, and as it relates to, to its potential cost to humanity and economies. 
there's also clearly a lot of recognition around uh, the large TAM and just the, the sheer dollars that need to be deployed here. Most people would look at that and say, wow, that's a, a, a really large, secular, growing, investable opportunity. There's a role for technology, clearly, as cost curves come down. There's a role for entrepreneurship. There's a role for capital markets of how do you get the cost of capital to come down for new platforms, new businesses. That's what you would look at in any space, anywhere. There's probably some technical expertise and networks, as I said earlier, that again, if I'm just a regular way venture capitalist or private equity firm, I'm looking for inefficiencies in the market. Occasionally, you'll have non-economic actors that create some different situations for entry points. These are all characteristics that one looks for in any investment. I, I think saying sustainable or impact tends to trigger or elicit an emotional response from people. But if you just were to, as you said, not use those words, just outline the baseline characteristics of some of these investment opportunities, many profit-maximizing investors would seek them out. So that's kind of the normalizing work that we're trying to do. We want to compound at really high rates, have great risk-adjusted returns, do so over very long periods of time. What's not normalized is, look, we have a different aspiration. We want to be very intentional that we're trying to address big issues in the world. We want to activate the entirety of our clients' capital because we think it's critically important. And when we think about intergenerational equity, it's not just the intergenerational equity of the investment portfolio. It's, well, who cares if you've created this great portfolio, if you're living in some dystopian future, you've extracted all of the resources, you've created this unlivable society, but thank goodness that you have this large in, in portfolio. I, I don't think people would be very pleased with that outcome. I, I think you actually win in moving dollars with the normalization argument. I do. I think that's how more endowments, pension funds, insurance companies are going to start to move. But I think the flywheel really starts to grow when people realize just the importance of this work. How much easier is it to engage with or work with clients on the OCIO side of Capricorn's business, where you do what you say, total portfolio activation, you're taking a traditional endowment model, but also baking in the impact components of it, or the measurement of sustainable outcomes. How do you think about where you were earlier on in your life cycle of Capricorn and where you are now in terms of people coming to you saying, hey, I want to do this and I want to do it with my entire portfolio. Is there still a lot of education that has to go into that? Or are people coming to you saying, of course, I want to solve these problems. And I also can generate returns with you by doing that. So this is not a hard conversation to have. It's a good question. One thing I would say is that relative to 15 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, I think the ability to build an entirely mission aligned portfolio in which every aspect from your fixed income to your infrastructure, equities, et cetera, obviously with varying degrees of intensity around the impact and, and how catalytic they are, is much greater today than it was back then. Why is that? That's because of the talent of asset managers that have chosen to focus on this. It's because of the talent of the entrepreneurs that are building solutions. And it's our understanding of what impact means and different interventions around how do you address climate and energy transition. You can do so in a whole variety of ways. Like it used to be climate was just about energy and power markets. Now I think there's an understanding. It's about industrials. It's about real estate. It's about agriculture. It's about transportation. It's about all of these areas of the economy that are significant. And there's a lot of different ways to invest in and around them. I heard someone said a while back, every company is a software company or a technology company. And today there's a version of that happening around climate. All companies need to think about this as both a risk and opportunity. Today, when we think about managing total portfolios, what's really exciting is that you can credibly tell someone, look, we, we can build a multi-asset class diversified portfolio, layer in all of the characteristics that you would want to have something that can meet your long-term objectives for many, many years, meet your current payout needs, whatever those might be. And there will really be no trade-off. That's obviously our belief. We have to prove it day in, day out. But ultimately, we think we can build more resilient portfolios, which integrate a lot of these considerations, which again, I don't think you could have said 10 or 15 years ago is the honest answer. And even for us, we've been building towards this over time. And as talent and capabilities come in, it's enabled us to do that. You say something really interesting in your last statement, which is building a more resilient portfolio. Where my mind goes is to risk. It sounds like investors would be adding risk to their portfolio if they're not thinking about how climate may impact any of their investments, whether it's 
in climate or energy itself, but it could be anything else. Today's world, that could be impacted by some sort of risk that if you're not actually screening for some of these intangible qualities or, or these sustainable investment qualities, you may actually be putting your portfolio at more risk. Is that fair to say? I think the current more political debate around ESG comes into this question. And without going into it overtly, at the highest level, would you rather know more or less about an investment before you're going to make it? It's important, however, that you're looking at material factors. Not every you know piece of information is material to the risk or prospective value of an investment, but many are. On the margin, would we prefer to think more holistically about future outcomes, tail risk, many of which do start to get into environmental risks or governance risks? We do think that by not considering energy transition risk, even frankly, physical impairment risk, and thinking about how this will all play out and not having a crystal ball, but thinking about the spectrum of outcomes around scenarios. If you're not accounting for that, or you're just saying, well, I don't do ESG, that seems to me that you're likely willing to accept more risk than is needed because there's a lot of good information out there. It may not be perfect and we don't know exactly how things will evolve, but we know we're on a significantly precarious path here around climate. And for us, it just seems like prudent investment management, if nothing else. So related to this, I want to cover the concept of narrative development because often in investing, developing a narrative is so important in understanding why you're doing something selling that to both founders, LPs, your own investment committee, what have you. I had a really interesting conversation with another fund manager recently, and he was talking about the concept of mythology, creating this mythology around your firm as a way where it would attract entrepreneurs, it would attract LPs. I think Capricorn has done an incredible job of that in this space over 20 years. When I think of sustainable investors who also tend to generate returns. I think of Capricorn. I think that's in part because of the way that you've created the narrative around this whole concept of what you're investing in. How would you think about that concept and how would you go about building narratives if you're a fund manager? Whatever narrative or or success that we've had, it's because of other folks here. I've had the benefit of working with really exceptional people here. I would extend your point to one of the things that we've benefited from is the ability to attract new people. It's not just LPs. It's the human capital of our own firm. The people that have joined us as partners all the way down to analysts, they're exceptional. And it's in part because they want to be part of a firm that has this mission uh, and orientation. I think that's one of the biggest trends around sustainability and impact. It's the human capital component of it. To me, it comes back to this idea of we're not trying to be everything to everyone. There are certain things that I think we do reasonably well. There are other things we don't try to do. But at its core, we're trying to be catalytic. We're looking for some form of innovation. We're looking for scale. And I think that does maybe differentiate us to some degree from other impact firms. There's an embedded scale that we've had and we've benefited from. And we also look for highly scalable solutions. And we want to be very entrepreneurial friendly, whether that be companies or new asset managers. We want to be a great partner to them. So if we've had some narrative, I think it's been around some of those core attributes. And by the way, we obviously deal with this because we try to help co-create asset management firms. And I think you're completely right. And Jan and some of my other colleagues say this. If you can't articulate your impact thesis or your value proposition in a couple sentences, you're going to lose people. And it's so critical to fundraising. You need to be able to communicate to LPs, why do you exist What problem are you addressing? What is your theory of change as it relates to impact? And what innovation are you really bringing to the market? Because otherwise you're just going to get, you know, lost in in the myriad of firms out there. On that point, you've been incubating and seeding funds at Capricorn over the years across industries and investment strategies. You did this in healthcare, Capricorn Health, now Martis, multi-billion dollar fund. You did it with Virgo and the private debt side, private credit side, well before private credit was really popular. You're doing it in sustainability, investing in all of these asset managers and seeding them. What would you say are some of the things that you've learned from doing this over time and then seeing in the managers what makes them successful as both business builders and investors? Part of the reason we got into this work, we wanted to invest sustainably. We wanted to drive impact. But at the time we were starting, 04, 05, 06, 
it's not like you could just go allocate to all the existing funds. You had to build it because it didn't exist already. And so that's a good precursor to, to, to getting into this work, the necessity of it. And then also the recognition, it's really hard in asset management to retrofit. And that is one of our theories. It's not to say that the existing large platforms aren't going to figure out how to be impact-oriented or invest into climate. But ultimately, investing is about the human capital element. What is repeatable? People have different mental models and ways to invest that's based on their experience over the last 20, 30 years. So if you don't break out of that uh, routine, it's hard to think differently about how to deploy capital, how to create alignment around incentives. One of the things we find is that when we've made mistakes, we probably haven't gone far enough around creating something really new. If you're just taking one step away from traditional and calling it sustainable, you may be able to do perfectly fine, but it'll be difficult to really create an enduring asset management franchise. You need to create something very different have the entire organization around that. Our criteria for when we're looking to start up a new firm with a team is there's the asset management context, there's the impact context of how is this important, why is it important, why does it not already exist? The asset management context, of course, is the same thing everyone looks at. What is the TAM? How fragmented is the industry? Why are there barriers to entry? How can you make a franchise that can maintain a certain fee load and grow AUM? And then look on the team. I think it's difficult to quantify, but the authenticity around why they're doing this work is really critical. It's become increasingly easy to see when folks are just doing this for greenwashing or just for marketing reasons. But if you can really build that mosaic around why are certain teams coming together, and it's not as if they had to have been working in impact for the last 30 years, or they had to have been working at a development finance institution. We're not looking for that. They could have been doing something very different, but there needs to be some continuity and coherence around how is everything that they've been doing in the past kind of lead them to this point and wanting to start this new firm to do this form of impact investing. So we spend a lot of time just understanding those characteristics. In impact, usually when people are in seeding or GP stakes, it's you have a great investor, he or she may not be a great business builder. In our case, layer on top of that, the impact work. That's one other kind of work stream, if you will, that needs to be deeply integrated, but it's one more thing for them to do exceptionally well. So we try to help them in that regard. More often than not, the business building, we can help quite a bit. Obviously the impact authenticity that has to come from them, but we can really supplement it around creating coherence and congruence around how are they doing it? Is it really different? The investment work ultimately at the end of the day, they need to be great investors that are really capable. Why? do this as a platform or fund that seeds other funds rather than just have this strategy in-house at Capricorn? So it was partly just the scale of opportunity that we saw. And I think the urgency, if you will, both around the financial opportunity as well as the impact opportunity. We've always been very partnership oriented. If we could pool our capital with a small number of other like-minded investors that had a systems level orientation around this, because ultimately to be excited about seeding, co-creating, accelerating other impact asset management firms, you have to have a systems level lens, in my opinion. You're, you, you see the multiplier effect of if I create these firms, which in turn can raise multiples of capital, that's what's exciting. And of course, the financial opportunity is, is well understood and clear as more and more people have gotten into wanting to own alternative asset management firms because of the cash flows and the nature of those businesses. If we could partner with not thousands, but a small number of like-minded investors that really want to drive impact through the asset management industry and rethink how asset management integrates impact, we thought there was a lot of power in that. We can leverage their capabilities and combine those with our own. It also creates some clarity around purpose. If you're seeding within a diversified multi-asset class portfolio, you're gonna have a lot of different tensions around why are you making those decisions? It could be because of valuations, it could be because of a certain need within a certain part of the portfolio. Whereas by creating a standalone pool, isolating it, and saying, look, this is our capital that we're going to try to be very intentional about. We're agnostic about asset class. We're agnostic about the underlying activity. Just what we want is a great team that's highly motivated, wants to build a really important business. 
in an industry, in the asset management industry that has characteristics where we'd want to be an owner. So it tends to be more private market oriented, specialty finance, credit infrastructure. We will do some public markets, but it's just harder. The few firms we have there are really exceptional in that they've been able to break through. And then the impact, it's about what level of innovation are you actually bringing? Because look, it's hard. For example, it'd be hard for us today to do regular way renewable infrastructure like solar or wind. Not because we don't think it's important, but for the most part, that's been reasonably well understood. Now it's just about scale. So do we have a real role to play in that today? Probably not as much. We need something special that's coming with the new platform that really differentiates it. Otherwise, we're not achieving our impact objective. And frankly, you'd have to question, could you build a, a really valuable business? On the point of building a really valuable business, you said earlier that things often become valuable when you're doing something different. You've called this business you're building, the, the Sustainable Impact Fund or Greenbridge, a first-of-a-kind company for first-of-a-kind financing. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, so just to step back, our fund is the Sustainable Investors Fund in which we're doing a variety of seeding activity and acceleration to really help get business off the ground. Within that sits this business called Greenbridge. That's a prospective investment. And that's a first of its kind financing platform. And really what we think of there is, again, as I said, the solar and wind, we know the model for how those have been scaled up, how they've become bankable, and now how they're able to attract large institutional flows. But we're also at this point in time, because of all the venture dollars that have come into the economy, the focus of a lot of venture funds on clean tech and climate solutions, the focus of government programs like the Inflation Reduction Act and then the equivalent globally, that you now have this kind of unprecedented wave of clean tech verticals that are reaching commercialization. But we're back to maybe where we were 15 years ago with solar and wind, where there's a dearth of capital to fund these companies. So we're looking at the opportunity to provide financing for first of their kind type solutions similar to what we had done in the past in other areas. So it's really bridging that gap between venture and infrastructure. And there just aren't a lot of great businesses set up to do that. And the first of its kind, that's a phrase used by many in the renewable sector around how can you get all of these new innovative commercial solutions to their first pilot facility or their first large-scale development. We think there's a lot of opportunity there. It's an incredibly rich opportunity. Does this have shades to the pre-2010 era where in solar in particular, there was a lot of venture money going into what ended up being in many cases, hardware investments in some senses. And, and it was actually very challenging time for the solar industry. And now you also see a lot of venture dollars going into, I'll call it climate solutions more broadly. How much does this remind you of history repeating itself versus maybe we're at a different time, number one, and number two, the type of financing that you're providing will actually enable the venture dollars to accelerate the growth and, and it'll help that portion of the investment world as well. I, th I think hopefully we and others have learned something from that experience. Obviously, the world has progressed, of course, because of the technology and innovation. So much of this is, has just become much more financeable than even maybe it was 15 years ago. The policy environment, it may not be perfect, Clearly, the Inflation Reduction Act was a, a large accelerant to a lot of this activity. That doesn't de-risk it fully. You'd still need private actors, but it's certainly different from where we were 15 years ago. And then to your point, I think we learned something about the need for this intermediate transitional form of financing that just wasn't available. We're obviously focused on it. Many others are. Private equity, for example, has been somewhat outside of a lot of the climate and, 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 and impact space. It was a lot of venture. Uh, how do you create these new innovative solutions? It was a lot of infrastructure, which is just how do you get as much of this into the field once it's kind of been de-risked? And there wasn't a natural role for growth equity, private equity, but that's clearly changed as well. It's nowhere near probably where it needs to be if you look at the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that need to go out every year. Uh, but there's certainly more of these type of, of, of platforms. In, in our case, we're probably willing and able to take slightly earlier risk than many of these platforms. And I, I think if we do it, we'll be well compensated for it because it's probably less competitive in, in that area.
Do you think we still have so many dollars from the LP community to flow into this space that you still feel, particularly as you think about seeding a lot of these managers, like you're getting in so early relative to the overall opportunity set from an asset management side? Time will tell, certainly. And and this is, of course, the overall dynamic around private markets and, and how much LP capacity there is for what are ultimately new funds. We all know that many allocators have chosen to re-up with their existing managers, and as such, they have less capacity for these new platforms. I do think over the last year and a half or two years, if you're just a regular way venture manager or alternative manager, I think it's probably been harder to break through. I think because of the structural and fundamental demand drivers around climate and impact and increasingly asset owners' interest in having more dollars here, and because there aren't so many established firms, you've been able to get in front of LPs and you've been able to have those discussions. Whether or not they've turned into to large-scale funds is a different matter, but you can tell that allocators understand that this is a 10, 20 30-year trend and they need to be active in it, we don't have nearly the amount of dollars that are needed. And so the SPACs, obviously SPACs have become a very bad word and there are all sorts of complexity around the alignment of interests. And I think there's merit to that. But why did the SPACs gravitate to a lot of the clean tech and climate solutions segment? It's because there was no other capital there. There wasn't private equity or growth equity there. And this is only four years ago. There were very few large capital providers that could come in and write 300, 400, $500 million checks, which during the boom is what they were doing. A lot of that money was funded via pipes. So clearly there was institutional interest in a lot of these. Some of them may not have been viable businesses, but some will have been funded and they're on a good trajectory. But I think you mentioned something interesting about the, the capital raising environment now, particularly in private markets, where a lot of the institutional allocators, while they are certainly interested in investing in high quality funds, as well as, in some cases, sustainable investments for one reason or another, it's really the high net worth or wealth channel that is the real focus and has come to come in the crosshairs of many of the GPs, whether they're large or small. I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to the sustainable investing space because you've had all these private banks and wealth managers know that the next-gen clients really care about not just making money, but having an impact with the, the dollars that they invest or spend, for that matter. How do you think about approaching the wealth community, both one, educating them on why sustainable investing makes sense? To some extent, that's part of your DNA. You were a family office, a single family office at the start, a multifamily office, and now an OCIO. How do you think about educating the wealth channel on the opportunity of sustainable investing? And, and how do you think they can work with fund managers like your ilk? It's a good question. And, and certainly, you know, I'm not an expert in it. But I think it goes back to some of your original questions. On the one hand, we need to normalize this activity around there are big pressing challenges in the world. Like climate change is a glaring issue. It's highly complex. It has applicability across the portfolio. It has applicability for when you're dealing with the high net worth or ultra high net worth with the businesses that they own. Obviously, they're also living in the real world without multiple constituents institutionally. So they see it in their own way. They see it, as you said, with their own family. If you take that maybe requiring some education, but really take it for granted and say, there's an investment opportunity here of the next 10 or 20 years. And it's just about creating specialized platforms that are purpose-built to address it in the same way that there have been purpose-built platforms to address traditional technology, venture capital, or real estate. So really articulating some of the specialization and characteristics that create really good outcomes. It's about the basic building blocks that are important to drive any sort of investment returns. I think the narrative, as you said, you've kind of taught me more so, uh, around the engagement and how do you make this real for people? I think one of the challenges for many is that climate is, it's such a systemic and ubiquitous issue. It's hard in some ways to personalize it and make the impact quite as tangible as maybe you can in other sectors. So I think finding interesting ways to engage the high net worth and ultra high net worth channel through really innovative forms of engagement is important. And then ultimately, like we compete on creating great outcomes and, and there's no impact if you have a venture investment which fails. I think there's also another form of education, which is 
not all impact or climate has to just be in one part of a portfolio. You're very naturally limiting your applicable universe for a portfolio if you just say, well, I only do impact here. There's different ways to have impact. They're going to have different forms of intensity. Some will be very catalytic. Others will be incrementally moving the ball forward, but they're all important. If you tell someone you can start on this pathway and it doesn't need to be totally binary, kind of high risk investing, it could be infrastructure or it could be public equities. I think there's different ways to engage with people depending on meeting them wherever they are. You've made a number of great investments in this space, to your point, across different strategies or, or asset classes, but all with a sustainable investing bent. What would you say are some of the biggest lessons learned from the successes you've had? It's a bit generic, but certainly the teams and entrepreneurs matter quite a bit. That's consistent across any form of investing. I think flipping it on its head where we've made mistakes, more often than not, it could be a, a function of, of the team. Of course, sometimes you can be early in a sector and the technology or markets may just not be there. But I think just more fundamentally, our model is about creating these really enduring high quality partnerships with companies and asset management firms. As you articulated earlier, when you're working on something innovative, and Jan says this quite a bit, when you're working on something important, they tend to find their own solutions, maybe with a lot of work, but it is true. If you're working on something that ultimately matters, even in kind of the darkest times, you may be able to find different financing solutions or different uh, pathways to get to an outcome. If you're working on something really generic and doesn't matter, at entry, you have to ask yourself, if this doesn't go perfectly, how am I gonna find an outcome? Whereas if you're doing something different and, and important with a big TAM or, or big potential impact, um, we've just found that more often than not, even when it, it looks a bit dire, you can regain momentum and, and create really good outcomes because none of these things are linear, even if in hindsight, they look like they were a, a straight path. What advice would you give to asset allocators or investors who are looking to invest for sustainable impact? I think it's important that organizations look inward to some degree. There's, there's no one size fits all. Certainly within impact, many people would define it in their own way. And of course, very reasonable. I think if you want to have success, you can't just replicate what others are doing. Think about what is unique to you or the organization and then start to express it. In our case, we started with this venture mindset. And so we built from there. Others might start in a very different place. It always frustrates me to some degree. But I also wouldn't allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. You have these asset owners that are unwilling to, to start investing because they want academic proof that sustainability drives excess returns. That's never going to happen. You have to start to just try some things, allow yourself to fail prudently, so not take speculative risk, but allow that it may not be the case that everything works out perfectly, but take the same risk, frankly, that you're willing to take in other segments. I, I think sometimes that impact is held to a higher bar around what needs to be proven out at the IC level prior to deploying capital than even some other areas of the market. When I think there's a lot of really good reasons why it's much more inefficient, much more undercapitalized. And so the basic building blocks are there to at least give you a slight advantage. Do you think that the impact or sustainable investment space needs a standardized set of agreed upon metrics that people can then underwrite just like they would on the investment, the traditional investment side in order to make impact or sustainable investing go mainstream. Or like you say, everybody has their own version of what impact means. And to your point, that may be fine. I, I ascribe to that view to, to some extent. So how do you think about that? Yeah, again, and this is all still a bit new. I think it was 1999 with Kofi Annan where we introduced the idea of ESG and impact investing was 2007. And so the idea that this won't continue to evolve and we won't get smarter and more refined around measurement is, is not realistic. Of course we will, but I don't think we should hold things up waiting for that. We have the UN SDGs. I think net zero frameworks are very valuable in the sense of thinking holistically at a business and portfolio level. Like again, it's not just energy, it's how do you decarbonize the entirety of the economy? In, in detail, it's not simple, but in theory, it's reasonably straightforward. You should be thinking about all capital allocation decisions, incorporating the long-term goal of decarbonizing the economy fully. And, and that seems like a, a reasonably straightforward principle to, that, that one could employ. I'm not a huge advocate of 
focusing a lot of our time and energy to find the the perfect uh, framework. I think there's a lot of very smart people. I think there are wonderful frameworks out there that overlap to some degree. And so I wouldn't minimize the importance of it, but I'm not sure that that's actually the the gating factor in this. I think that's a fascinating point. I think shouldn't let certain aspects of things hold back the space because you can make a lot of progress. And there's plenty of ways and areas to invest into this space, as you shared. I love ending this podcast by asking every guest the same question, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? We've already talked about it to some degree. I'm very interested in specialty finance. I, I think it is absolutely fascinating around how do you have different delivery models for capital? You're far more expert in than I am, but we tend to think about that as being a really important part of the climate journey and then also the alt space. I think that's a fascinating point because it's one that in some ways is certainly less risky than venture, which is what a lot of people think about when it comes to solar investing through venture. Now, I think there's obviously interesting ways to do that, but the specialty finance side, it's more like fixed income in a sense, in some respects. And these are projects that people can really touch, see, and feel. It could be solar on a roof. It could be EV charging stations on a gas station on a highway. There's so many different components of this that people can understand that that's real life. And look, there's only so many dollars that can go into venture. It's highly specialized, highly technical. There are people that do it extraordinarily well. Not everyone will feel comfortable deploying dollars in there. But if you look at the various SDGs, if you look at the climate projections, most of that capital is going to come in the form of debt. Not all of it will be super senior bank debt. Some of it's going to have to be in this middle zone. And so if you can figure out really interesting ways to originate high volume, high quality underwriting, that's incredibly scalable and and impactful for a portfolio. I think this point actually mushrooms to a broader point, which is private credit was formerly a cottage industry within private markets. It's now 1.5 trillion of a little over 11 trillion of AUM in private markets. That's a massive size and scale of the market. And obviously this is one piece of that, but that I think illustrates how much opportunity there is in this space. And and microfinance was one of the original forms of impact investing that is a specialty finance alternative lending strategy. One of our big focus areas is in private credit and specialty finance, like how do you both integrate sustainability and climate more deeply? How do you build new platforms to do this? Because it's the critical piece that connects uh, a lot of this work. I think that's a great way to end because it illustrates just how much opportunity there is really across different spectrums of sustainable investing. We talked about Tesla. That's one piece of it. That was a venture investment at one point in time that you all made. But you talk about the credit side of things too. And there's plenty of opportunity there. So Bill, this was a fascinating conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going